Good afternoon and welcome to the business community on Calon FM. Welcome to the business community with me, Heather Noble. And me, Tracy Jones. All over the press this week, there has been what sounds like good news on the face of it. And and that's what we're going to be discussing today. It's the idea of a a reduced working week, whether that's a three-day week or a four-day week. And um, people like Richard Branson and uh, the TUC are saying that, you know, it's coming. This is going to happen and everybody's going to be better off for it. Uh, Business will be better off. People will will be better off. Uh, and the bottom line will be improved. Uh, so we thought we'd we'd take a look at it and just see you know, what this actually means, because on the face of it, it just sounds like having an extra lie-in once or <laughs> twice a week. But I think there's more to it than that. Uh, there's the length of the day that you're working. Um, so are you going to work the same number of hours, but just across less days? Uh, are you going to work less hours? Therefore, are you going to earn less money or are you going to work less hours but be paid the same? Uh, and how y- reducing this time, um, if that's what happens, how does that fit in with uh, automation and artificial intelligence and all of the new things that are coming in? Uh, so it's quite a, it's quite a complex subject, isn't yeah, it, Tracy? Yeah, it is rather. As you say, you could reduce the hours that you get paid for but end up not doing any less work, which mm. is... One of the big issues, and I, I know I've experience of it with um, with people that I know that have previously been working full time because of childcare issues, have asked to go part time, and they get obviously then paid for three out of five days, but still do the same yeah. amount of work. You know, so they fit it in in the evenings or they work longer days. So that's probably the worst case scenario one of the best examples i found was that the swedish government uh, recently did an experiment um they, they funded an experiment in a retirement home where the nurses worked six hours a day but still received an eight hour salary okay and the result was less sick leave less stress and a jump in productivity mm. so that's a sort of yeah, um, and I the working hours I like the sound of. Yeah, is is that sense that actually it's better for your health and your mental health and may, maybe even your approach to work, and and so you actually get more out of people by by being generous like that. I think it's a bit like the the whole um, flexible working and the working from home thing, where you know there's studies that that demonstrate that people who work from home actually work harder than people who are in the office because they're overcompensating for the fact that they don't want people to be thinking that they're just drinking coffee and playing with the cat. So there's, there's that there's that flip side. And yeah. also, and I was fortunate enough a number of years ago, um, to I think it was the perfect balance when I was employed. Um, I had a job where I worked four days and I had three days off. And in terms of my well-being, which is, you know, very, very important, I worked really, really hard during those four days. Um, I'd often stay late because I wanted to make sure that I was on top of everything because I was going to be out of the office on a working day. Uh, But I would have a day to do stuff that I wanted to do, a day to do duty stuff with family and, you know, and then a day to do all of the jobs that you need to do. So actually, when I got to work, I wasn't nipping out at lunchtime trying to whiz around the supermarket to get the shopping because I've been able to do it on the Friday that I was off. Or checking your emails to see stuff you have to catch up with. Exactly, or I must 
book that or I must arrange that or I must check the dog into the vet. And vets. that is one, one of the things, isn't it? If you're working a solid week and you've never got any time Monday to Friday in working hours, you are left out of a lot of things. For example, something very simple for me quite recently was I needed to pick up a new recycling bag from the council. Yeah, yeah. And the, when when could I go and get that? Because I've got to go in office hours in a town that I don't work in and go and get a recycling bag. And that becomes bag. a stress, which it's nonsense. You know, why should that be stressful? It shouldn't be. And, you know, there are so many time to go to the doctors, time to, I don't know, I don't know what what do guys like doing. Not get their nails done, but you know, go and play go and play football or go and have a round of golf or whatever. You can only do it on a weekend. So let me give you the opposite end of the spectrum here. So there was an article in the Guardian from January this year, and the headline was a bit dramatic. Do you work more than thirty nine hours a week? Your job could be killing you. So it's sort of a okay. bit. It's a bit of an eye catching headline. Just a bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. However, it starts off with a story of a group of new interns who started work at Barclays in New York. And I say work here, this is unpaid work they were doing. And an email that was waiting for them was from the supervisor at the bank saying, welcome to the jungle. I recommend bringing a pillow to the office. It makes sleeping under your desk a lot more comfortable. The internship really is a nine-week commitment at the desk. And when, when one of the new interns asked for a weekend off, a weekend... off for a family reunion he was told he could go but he was also handed his um black asked to hand in his blackberry and to pack up his desk because he was no longer required this Uh. is for an unpaid job now that that apparently was meant as a joke but i don't think um that it it came shortly after um a young lady who was an intern in london who died after working 72 hours in a row at bank of america you know that that's taking the work ethic to too far ridiculous extremes isn't it yeah um but this article um I I followed a bit of a thread here. This was written by a gentleman called Peter Fleming, who has also written a book. So I went in to have a look at this. And the book is called The Death of Homo Economicus, Work, Debt and the Myth of Endless Accumulation. So in today's workplaces, we work harder and longer, labouring under the illusion that this will bring us more wealth. As this myth becomes increasingly preposterous, it's time to understand why we believe in it and where it came from. So this book by Peter Fleming explores the origin of this oppressive myth in order to destroy it. It sounds a little bit like a polemic. Uh, The story begins with the creation of a fake persona labelled the dollar hunting man, invented by economists Adam Smith and Frederick Hayek. And today, this persona, driven by competition and ego, is used by politicians and managers to draw a veil over the terrible reality of work. Creeping into all aspects of life, the desire to constantly compete and accumulate must be resisted if we are to create a better way of life for all. Sounds really interesting. This guy wrote um, is clearly a journalist as well. He's writing articles for The Guardian. I, I did a few um, checks on Amazon. A few people say, really interesting, but after a while it becomes a bit of a rant. Yep. But it does stop and make you think. It certainly made me think as well. Um, because I, I read on to the article in The Guardian again, and he made a really good point, which is there is a danger that merely reducing working hours doesn't change anything. 
because um, if your job is intrinsically disenfranchising, you're not really going to achieve much more. You're not going to feel better mentally, physically, and your work isn't going to improve because if the job is is not meaningful and varied, then just doing fewer hours of it isn't particularly going to help. Yeah, and that's a bit like that whole presenteeism thing, isn't it? You know, if you if you actually and let, okay, let's let's get real here. Not everybody is fortunate enough to do a job that they love uh, for all of their life. You know, we all we've all done jobs that we're not that keen on because we need to bring in uh, the money and and you know whatever's going on in your life at the time. So let's make no bones about that. But if you love your job, you're gonna you're gonna achieve everything that needs to be done in the in whatever time you're at work. You know, wages and salaries, unless you are operating a piece of equipment that you need to operate it for eight hours in order to make a thousand widgets, you know, it's it's that's that is quantifiable. Uh, But if you work in something a bit more um, uh, vague, (laughs) you know, are you going to write that report? Well, do you have to write so many words a minute or does the report just need to be written by the end of your working week? You can make it yeah. last. And do you have to sit at your desk till five o'clock? Totally. Just yeah. to write that report. Work can expand to fill the available hours. <laughs> we've all we've all um, encountered that. But I think one thing that you mentioned um, was the whole idea of, you know, working a longer week, we are financially better off. Well, might that not be because you got less time to go out and spend money because you just sat at work for five days. There there is another element to this as well because there's research been done um, probably all over the place, but the one I picked up on was in Australia and they looked at cognitive function as well. So this is actually your ability to do these tasks. Um, So they were asked to read out loud, recite lists of numbers backwards to match letters and numbers under time pressure. And it showed that those who worked about 25 hours a week and this is over 40s they looked at as well, tended to achieve the best scores. And um, the figures suggested that the cognitive ability of those working around 60 hours a week can be lower than those who are not employed at all. Now, 60 hours a week seems horrendously high, but you think um, junior doctors? Yes, yeah. And what do you want your cognitive ability to be of somebody who's going to take life or death yes. decisions? Yeah. So I think there's a, really a lot to be thought about here. We're raising retirement ages, but are we still going to expect these people who are in their 70s to continue to, to work long hours? Are we going to get the best out of all the people? You know, what is best for our workforce? It really needs a, a good rethink. And I don't think it will ever be a blanket across all sectors. I don't think that that's ever going to happen where we just live in a, you know, instead of it's five days and a weekend, it's four days and a three-day weekend. I, don't, I think that's a myth and it's never going to happen. But I think with artificial intelligence and autonomy and... and Um, automation rather, uh, there are areas where a reduced working week could work. Here on the business community, there's nothing we like better than having a trawl around all of the business events that are happening um, in the local area and further afield. And we've got a few goodies for you this week, I think. Um, The first one is one that has been mentioned before, but it's looming large. 4th of October up at Chester, the Chester Business Show. Uh, It's 10 till 3 and it's uh, on the 4th of October. And it's a free event, 
but there will be lots of networking, uh, lots of workshops around best practice and um, emerging trends. Uh, and it, yeah, it's a great opportunity to find out what's happening in and around Wrexham businesses. You can also exhibit uh, and stands are only £175 plus fat, which I think is quite a good deal. So that's Chester Business Show. Then uh, here at uh, Glyndor University in the Catherine Finch Centre, again next month, the 9th of October, there's some round table networking taking place. Uh, that's, uh, let me just have a look. It is a free event uh, and it's from 8.30 till 10.30, so still time to go and do a day's work afterwards. Uh, it looks like a great opportunity just to... Um, meet some local businesses, build some connections and and just generally experience a bit of networking because sometimes networking can be really energising. And then finally, over in Staffordshire on the 24th of October, this is a full day, it's Staffordshire Business Festival in a day. Uh, I think it looks worth the travel. It's over in Stoke-on-Trent. It's got some speakers. It's got lots of workshops it's got um, the uh, Department for International Trade. It's got a well-being event. There's even stuff around marketing. And it's all wrapped off, if you feel like it, with a gala dinner. Uh, so details of these and um, the event that Trace is about to mention will be on our website, thebusiness.community. Well, I'm very excited about this event. I've only just found out about it and I want to go. OK, I'm just trying to work out how I can go. Um, it's uh, an event hosted by IBM and it's called Think London 2018. So presumably they do these every year and they do them in other cities around the world. But this is on the 14th of November, 8 o'clock in the morning till 6.30 in the evening at the Old Truman Brewery in London. And the, the headline for the event is called Where Technology Meets Humanity. And uh, the subtitle is Challenge Yourself to Think Differently, which is, I think, pretty much mm -hmm. a strapline of IBM. And emerging technologies are changing the way we live, work and interact with one another every day. Exploring the relationship between humanity and technology is a bold endeavour and none of us can do it alone. So join IBM, join us. Maybe if I can go, uh, London twenty eighteen. Think London twenty eighteen to think differently and explore the potential. Now they've got some speakers, so let's have a look at the speakers they've got. Um, they've got Sir Chris Hoy, Olympic gold medal track cyclist, Mary Nightingale, a broadcast journalist, Mary Weeweck, Mary oh sorry, global general manager for IBM Blockchain, uh, Jeremy Waite, chief strategy officer for IBM, Martin Borrett, IBM distinguished engineer. I like that title. Ooh, that's well, quite a title, isn't it? Engineer, mm, not just any old engineer. Jacqueline Davy, vice president of enterprise industry units for IBM, and David Kerbishley, IBM cloud leader. So it it's a very IBM centric event, but. The the um, agenda, it's got some really interesting features. So they've got the keynote theatre with the keynote speakers. They've got something called the silent theatre. I was like, okay, what's that? It's just a quiet space with headphones and equipment where you can tune into TED-style sessions. 
and just watch them on your own with your headphones um, and, and just make yourself comfortable in the silent theatre. I like the sound of that, like mm. a silent disco, mm. but um, listening into debates. Then there's the fishbowl debates um, and there's a number of different subjects. So um, as retail outgrows the high street, what are the implications for commerce, community and well-being? Um, this is interesting, given what we've just been talking about. Um, when work becomes much more interesting with that AI, what will the implications be? Blockchain, help me. Um, I have absolutely no control of my own identity in the digital world. Uh, should CIOs, that's chief information officers, love or loathe the cloud and physical and cyber resilience? So the rules of the fishbowl are strict entrance curfew. Once the doors close, no admittance. There's no mobile phones, no cameras, no re recording devices. <laughs> Chatham House rules, what happens in the fishbowl stays in the mm -hmm. fishbowl. And it's your opportunity to get involved in a debate. Apparently there's a labyrinth. So can you escape one team for challenges and unlock your competitive instinct? I don't like the sound of that. I don't like the idea of being locked in somewhere. I think it's Crystal May's <laughs> sort of idea. So, you know, I'm thinking that sounds fantastic. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Work as a team against the clerk with a collaborative experience, solve puzzles and uh, use some real life examples of life changing IBM technology. There's a business and AI campus, a security and resiliency campus, cloud and data campus and modern infrastructure campus. It sounds great. So Think London 2018, where technology meets humanity, 14th of November in London. We'll put the link on our website, which is the business.community. This is the part of the show where we review a book or an app or a product or a service or an event. And this week we've gone for a book. Now, this was a book that we saw when we were reviewing the magazine Monocle a few weeks ago. Uh, there was a whole list of books that were recommended in there. So we thought we might as well pick one or two from there. And um, Malcolm Gladwell is the author of this book. Uh, Malcolm has been the staff writer with the New Yorker magazine since 1996 and in 2005 he was named one of Time magazine's 100 most influential people and the book we're talking about is The Tipping Point How Little Things Make a Big Difference and it was published in 2000 since then he's also written Blink The Power of Thinking Without Thinking and Outliers, which was published in 2008, and David and Goliath, Underdogs, Misfits and the Art of Battling Giants. And that was published in 2014. There are also a number of YouTube videos, one about spaghetti sauce, um, which is, is a classic, which you would perhaps go and have a look at. But we're looking at tipping points. Um, I don't own the book, but somehow I feel like I know it. I was really enthusiastic about it and I've looked at the reviews. It feels like a really familiar book and I don't know why. Heather, you own it. You've got your mitts on it, but it felt familiar to you too. As well. And to you, you're concerned you might have bought two copies well, of yeah, it. Well, yeah. I know I haven't read it. I know that much. But yes, it felt familiar to the point that I spent ages looking across all of my bookcases um, bookcases where my husband tends to keep books to, to find a copy because uh, I was sure that I'd got it anyway I ordered another copy um, and uh, and have that in my in my mitts now uh, and then my husband saw it and he said what are you doing with that book and I said oh well we're reviewing it for the for the show have you read it and he said yeah yeah it's a great book so it's not necessarily a business book per se but it is 
Um, it has some interesting themes around if you've got an idea, you know, what makes that idea become popular? Yeah. And the important thing is if you try and make something popular, it tends not to. Mm, mm. It, it, it's, it's a very interesting process through which um, something becomes, and the, the popular word we use now is viral, mm, isn't it? Mm. And, and Malcolm talks about this, is, is how ideas spread like epidemics. And he talks about what's needed in order for that idea to reach this point of critical mass, this tipping point where the viral effect of it becomes unstoppable. And it's absolutely fascinating. And it starts off by talking about the story of hush puppies in the 1990s. Yeah, hush puppies Cordy in the 1990s. And uh, they were pretty much dying a death in the, in the early 90s. The company that made hush puppies were you know, reportedly you know, close to um, failure. And word got out to them that the the cool guys down in a certain part of town had, were where it had been seen wearing hush puppies and extolling the virtues of hush puppies, probably because nobody else was wearing hush puppies, and it then became this cool thing, this niche thing, this um, hush puppy. But that story sort of spread. A hush puppy had nothing to do with it. The company say what happened next had virtually nothing to do with them apart from the fact that they made hush puppies so these cool guys were wearing the shoes and then a popular clothes designer wanted to feature them in a show and then another one and then they started to be seen in all the cool shows and then hush puppies just sold and sold and sold so really really popular shoe again in the 90s and hush puppy uh, the company who owned Hush Puppies had nothing to do with it. They will honestly admit that it just was out of their control. It's a really interesting story. And the the other story that I, I really latched onto, and by the way, Malcolm Gladwell is great on YouTube. He's a very interesting looking character, but he's very engaging. And he talks about um, a lot of work that he's done with companies um, particularly food companies around branding and um, and, and and ideas and and, and reproduct um, sort of rebranding products. And if if you just watch one TED talk in this next week, watch Malcolm Gladwell's TED talk about spaghetti sauce. It, it's going to be worth it. It's entertaining okay. and it's well delivered. But the ideas that you can learn from it are, are quite simple. That pretty much. Um, You've got to reach that tipping point. There are some people that are responsible for it, which we'll go into detail. And it's got to have um, this. It's got to be a good idea. It's got to. Yes. It's got to be a good idea for it to happen. But one of the things that I really picked up from it was if you want to make something go viral, you can't think about making it go viral. It almost has to happen on its own. On its own. And what you know what's interesting is is this reminds me very much about uh, brand wash that we yes. that we reviewed last week. Uh, and that whole story about the Morgansons where you know it's just the influence of you know oh have you seen my bag and then before you know it everybody's buying that bag. So it's the same principle. So yeah, businesses throw a lot of money at marketing and promoting but actually it is the little random thing isn't it that somebody latches onto and then it goes viral. And this book was written in 2000, which was, you know, really in the early days of viral marketing. Yeah, uh, I mean, we, we didn't have the, pla yeah, yeah, just can say the platforms for things to go so yes. very quickly and yeah. easily viral. Like 
light wildfire and he calls that when when he calls it um stickiness so if an idea or a product or something it, it, i suppose it gains traction and it's it's that sort of stickiness that it it that's the point at which it's it's going to go it's it's going to be big uh, and and that is at that where the tipping point starts to exist so he also talks about uh, pareto's law um which is where sort of 20% of um, things affect 80% of other things in general. And he talks about roughly 20% of the carriers of an idea cause 80% of the infection. So he's he's using that analogy of um, of an epidemic again here, of a disease. So Heather, I think you'd been looking at the kinds of people that can turn ideas into epidemics. Have I? <laughs> <laughs> I, I know you have because we were struggling with the pronunciation of one of them, <laughs> and I'm going to let you yeah. you pronounce it. No, so no, the okay. first <laughs> the first person is a connector. Yes. Okay. We all know them. Massive social network, many acquaintances, and they allow ideas to spread from one social group to the next. The salesman, the one who, salesperson it should be, I, I imagine, but salesman is the word used in the book. The boast about ideas they love and their incredibly positive energy is contagious. Third, you pronounce it, Heather? Maven. Maven. We had to go online to get yeah. it. I've always pronounced that, Maven, but I've never heard it spoken. So I, I bow to Google who says it's pronounced Maven. But in my head, it'll still be Maven. Be Maven, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and these are the the people that hoard information in order to be a great source of tips to their network, and the, the people which greatly influence people with their advice. And so, in in the book, Malcolm's talking about if you want your idea to go viral, these are the people you need to be getting your ideas to. So I guess with the um, with the hush puppies, and you know. Th- that idea started with one of these groups of people. If it hadn't been there and Hush Puppies had just said, hey, our shoes are dead cool, it, w- it wouldn't have really gained that same traction. It needed to be one of these connectors in here. And it's certainly true that it's true of young people, isn't it? That the, what kids hate more than anything is when their mum or their dad starts singing a song that's, you know, their song from from today or you know wearing the shoes so kids like vans and then mum and dad start wearing vans so now kids don't want to wear vans because you know it's that sort of it's that whole thing so because they claim something as their own so they I think they are naturally looking for the next thing so they're the people that have the ability to make something cool uh, and then for it to to go viral I guess. And um, the the other thing that um, he talks about is um, it, it doesn't matter how many people and how many influencers there are, so these three influencers, and how many other people give you testimonials and say how brilliant it is. Um, if it's bad, it's bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, if, if you're hush puppies, no matter how many people said it was brilliant, if when you put them on they fell apart then it still wouldn't get that traction and it still wouldn't have grown in the same way that it did. So you've got to have, that's all part of the stickiness factor, I guess. It's got to be good enough for people to actually want to go out and um, do something about it. I I looked at the four-minute books summary. Our saviour. Because although you've got the book... Yeah, I haven't had time to read it, (laughs) but but I am going to read it. I'm going on holiday next week, so I've got a pile of books that I need to... 
to focus on. But oh, can, um, you, can you share the list with me? Because there'll probably be the books we're reviewing, are they, in the next yeah. few weeks? <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you a heads up. Honest, honest. Um, but w- what um, what uh, the four minute book website does, and we've mentioned it many times in the past, is it says who the book would be recommended to, and I always think that's interesting. Uh, so the, the tipping point is recommended to the 17 year old blogger who's desperately hoping for a viral hit the 47 year old hobby writer with lots of connections who wants to learn how to use them better and anyone who has an idea worth spreading now okay just because you think it's an idea worth spreading i guess the tipping point will be the thing that will determine whether or not it is but uh, but yeah i think i, I I think there's something in here for everybody. And of course, this all relates back to business because if you've got a business idea or a product idea, all of these rules apply. This week's uh, business magnate uh, is a gentleman who died earlier this year, um, but was the founder of a, a brand that is known in every house you in might this have country. Heard of it. Yeah, yeah. You might um, well be sitting on. Something. You might well be sitting on something that's come from there, or uh, drinking from something that's come from there. It's Ingvar Kamprad who um, was the founder of IKEA. Uh, I'm hoping that's how you say IKEA. You it probably isn't say at all, IKEA no. or something. Uh, yeah, is it? You, that isn't how you pronounce it in Sweden. But right, I think that is we're, how we pronounce we're doing it in the it UK. Here. Yeah. We're doing it here. Um, Ingvar Kamprad. It was uh, labelled as the poorest billionaire. And his story, way, you know, right back in the back of beyond, because he was 92, I think, when he died, or near, not 91. quite 91, yeah. not quite 92. Um, yeah, he was labelled the poorest, poorest billionaire. He came from a very poor family. And he, he, when he was a child, when he was six, he started going door to door to sell matches to raise money. By the time he was 10, uh, he rode his bike around the neighbourhood and sold fish and pencils. I don't know why fish and pencils, but fish and pencils. And his classmates obviously were out playing football and dating girls. I think the idea why he chose those products is, I, I, I read somewhere, was that he could buy them in bulk okay. and sell them individually and right. make the profit. Make from, the profit yeah. on that. Okay. And we, so that he certainly built on that then and bought product in bulk and sold it cheaply but he it was quite controversial at the time because he kept the prices low and his competitors didn't like it so they used to go to manufacturers and get them to boycott um Camprad. so he started then looking overseas to find where he could buy products and he was known I mean, he, he was one of the wealthiest people on the planet. Um, his business obviously grew massively. I think mean, it was about 260 or so um, Ikea's, Ikea's, whatever you want to call it, around the world. But he was renowned for living quite a frugal life. He wasn't flash. Uh, he drove an old Volvo estate and travelled economy class and didn't really, you know, didn't spend money on anything that didn't need to be spent. Um I think he sounds like a really interesting character, apart from the IKEA thing. What have you got on him, Tracy? Yeah, I, again, I, I agree with you. Interesting character and lots of stories about how he started uh, IKEA. Uh, he founded it at the age of seventeen, having already done all of these other businesses. Which, which I, I, I like the idea of. When we talk a lot about these entrepreneurial types. Uh, they started quite early doing things like yeah. selling door to door or, or is it like 
um, to a um, get a bike, go yeah, and get a new last, yes. Yeah, Bannatine yeah. last week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, get, going and getting a, um, a newspaper around. Yeah. yeah. But um, he started IKEA. Apparently, he got the inspiration for flat pack furniture when he saw somebody taking legs off a table to fit it in a car. Okay. <laughs> and, <laughs> and unlike a lot of the entrepreneurs that we've talked about, once this IKEA seems to have been the main thing he's he's focused on. He hasn't then gone on and done a Richard Branson or a Elon Musk and gone he's off. He's stuck and, with yeah. it. Mm. Uh, he doesn't appear to have started any race to space um, like a lot of the um, very um, wealthy people that we've been talking about. Um, his, his, I think there's around 400 stores all around the world now and uh, 200,000 employees. But what I was particularly struck by was it's very difficult to say how much he was worth because of an incredibly complicated company structure. And this is apparently, and it's often been said, that this is to avoid tax. And the Green Party, uh, the European Green Party, said that the arrangements had allowed the company to avoid paying around £1 billion in tax, £1 billion in tax between 2009 and 2014. And it, it is com. I had a quick look and only skimmed over it, but it's complicated. It, there's um, charitable trusts, there's... Mm. You know, he doesn't appear to own it. But, yeah, that absolutely fascinating. Obviously a very um, good businessman to have grown it like that. But he does seem to have his own sense of ethics, you know, the way that he works with IKEA, you know, regardless of what you do in terms of tax. And we've talked about this before. Mm. I do believe companies should pay a good portion yeah. of tax. Yeah. However, regardless of that, he does appear to be, you know, thinking about his um, the employees and the wider society and whether that's a very um, Nordic type um, approach, you know, mm. whether it's something to do with um, where he came from in Sweden or his poor background. I really don't know. But one of the things that I did pick up on, um, which is um, mentioned a number of times, is he was involved in um, fascist activities mm. in the mid to late 40s. I don't know any details about this. He describes it as youthful stupidity and the worst mistake of his life. Um, it's discussed a number of times. We've mentioned it. We'll leave it there. I don't know the details of that one. But the other thing that really struck me was how he's leaving his business. Uh, this is really interesting. I picked up from um, a Swedish newspaper, actually, an article which said, um, Kamprad's daughter snubbed, that was the title. Mm. And when he wrote his will, um, he had a, an adopted daughter that he adopted with his first wife when she was three months old. And he's got three sons as well. Um, and he's left the business to his sons but it, it's very complicated as how he's done that uh, he he, he says i planned my death ever since 1978 when it comes to the future of ikea my construction is such that my family can't break down the capital right okay. so it's this business is left to his sons under a dutch foundation so it it's almost out of reach of his children He's totally protected and ring-fenced the business. The business, yeah. yeah. Although his children are involved in that. Um, and then he left his um, he left his adopted daughter $300,000, which seems like not very much at all. 
But according to... Now, the person who wrote this article doesn't seem to believe that. But apparently, <laughs> and you know, when you phrase something like that, um, she doesn't mind. And she says that's fine. Though she's quite happy with the £300,000 in his will. Um, I, I just think we've talked a lot about the entrepreneurs and whether they decide to leave money to their children or not. Or And, and I, I think um, other people's opinions of what people do with their wills are probably more interesting than what people actually do with yes. their wills. He, he, was, um, he was ranked the eighth richest man in the world at one time and he had a net worth of around $43 billion. What I understand is that people can only guess that because of the... The, the way the, the corporate yes, structure, yeah. yeah. But then what they then go on to say is that he then um, was downgraded in terms of his position as the wealth, eighth wealthiest because he gave away an awful lot of money and is and was then reported to be worth around six billion dollars. So there's thirty seven billion dollars gone somewhere, wow. um, which is quite a lot of money. Yeah. Um, and he seemed to have quite um, a desire for... Th there's a part of um, Sweden that he has invested in, and I think that's where quite a lot of that money went to, because he wants it to be developed and for it to be accessible to young people to be able to afford to live there. So whether he sort of made a little sort of Saltaire-type um, uh, town or region, I don't know, but... And did you find out about um, the book? Um, he, he wrote a book called A Testament of a Furniture Dealer in 1976, which is not available on Amazon. I right. Did check. OK. Um, so he's um, he details his philosophies of frugality and simplicity in what is described as a manifesto. And it's a message to his co-workers. Um, he, he reckons that every co-worker should have one of these books. It's the path to truth, the encapsulation of the sacred concept. And uh, it, it's quite interesting that you would, you would create a little manifesto like that. But I think that's maybe it's a testament to his strong values. Whether you agree with them or not, he's laid them out mm. and, and he's not hiding behind anything. And he this stood is what by them. Yeah. Since, since he wrote the book in yeah. the 1970s yeah. yeah there were loads of quotes um that i that i found and i and i liked an awful lot of them but there's um going back to his whole a flying economy and driving an old uh, beat-up volvo estate um one thing that he said i could have an office all to myself but since my collaborators don't have one then I too am contented to have a desk in a shared room. And he also travelled cheaply because he said, and I can't find the actual quote now, but he basically said, how can I expect my staff to travel cheaply and then me be in a private jet? You know, it's not, it's double standards. And that seemed to... I like that. Yeah, it seemed to go all the way through everything that he stood for. Um, but my favourite quote is... So this is your official This quote. is my official favourite quote. Yes, yes. Only those who are asleep make no mistakes. Yes, I like that one. So my official quote is simplicity and common sense should characterise planning and strategic direction. I like that one. Yeah, that is a good one. Interesting. He was more interesting than I thought he was going to be. And, and not that easy to find information on. You had to dig had to dig a little bit. No, well, maybe if we tried a bit harder, we could have got hold of his manifesto. Yes. Maybe yeah, go we to visit ahead. Ikea, that would have been... <laughs> yeah, yeah, go, yeah, yeah. Who needs On a Sunday excuse? with the rest of the world, <laughs> yes. 
So that's it. That's all we've got time for this week. But we hope you join us again next week for the business community. You've been listening to the business community with me, Tracy Jones. And me, Heather Noble. Join us again next week for more news, views and reviews from the world of business.